We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the underworld journey of Orpheus as well as the Orphic hymns. My guest is Ronnie Pontiac, who worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He has produced award-winning documentaries and has written articles for several esoteric magazines. He is the author of American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, and he is co-author with Tamra Lucid of The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic. Ronnie lives in Los Angeles, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ronnie. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you. As always, I'm honored to be here. Well, we're going to shift gears quite a bit with this interview because we, we've done if I recall correctly, four interviews already talking about American metaphysical religion going back to the era of the founding fathers up, up to the 21st century. But at this point, we're going to be uh, looking at ancient culture and in particular, the myth of Orpheus. One of the things I learned from your book is that there's very little agreement about uh, where the myths of Orpheus, the mysteries of Orpheus, the legends of Orpheus, where they originated and what sort of rituals or practices surrounded them. The, the whole issue seems to be, on the one hand, shrouded in mystery, and on the other hand, uh, a source of great inspiration for modern authors and filmmakers and poets. Absolutely. It's been a huge influence on Western esoteric culture, but also on all the arts in the West in particular. And it's amazing to see how countercultures have been inspired over and over again by things having to do with Orpheus. And in the book, we point out that, in a way, it seems that the Orphic culture was the first counterculture in the Western, his, in Western history. What kind of counterculture was it? Well, it, what, we have a Greek culture that's Homeric and Olympian. And so we are honoring the warriors. The best thing in the world is to be a great fighter and to die in battle. And men are supposed to be very manly and ready to fight because the Greek city-states were always battling each other. And they sacrificed animals as part of the worship of the Olympian gods. Now along comes this new religion somehow, a, a reworking of the Dionysian mysteries. And in this religion, 
fighting is bad. Being a warrior is not a good way to die. It's a terrible way to die because you'll remain in ignorance. It is not okay to sacrifice animals because what god could be pleased by such gore and horror and suffering? And instead, we should be offering the gods our good deeds. We should be offering the gods flowers and honey and milk and beautiful hymns that we write or poems to the gods to sing their praises and to ask them to grace us with memory so that we can remember what we really are, which is immortal souls. That is so different. And Aristophanes, of course, makes fun of it. Euripides shows anxiety about it in his plays. And we see in these uh, ancient Greek plays and in their theater how they're wrestling with this new counterculture where the men, the young men don't want to go fight. And then Socrates gets involved in all this. And, and it's amazing because what we often forget in, in modern interpretations of Plato is that in the Platonic world, in the world of Socrates, philosophy was an erotic art in the same way that music is and in the same way that poetry is. And it's erotic because the eros of, of love is what leads us from at first falling in love with some physical thing or person or aspect of life. And then we gradually climb this ladder until we love the one, the true, the good, the beautiful. I gather that in, in that context, Orpheus was regarded by representatives of the older culture as, as too effeminate. Indeed, not just effeminate, but he was a coward, according to Plato, who, who there's the famous story that, which I'm sure we'll talk about, they, they call it the backward glance. And it's about the death of Orpheus's wife, Eurydice, during, at their wedding, really. Uh, she's attacked by a shepherd uh, whose name is Aristeus. He might have been a beekeeper. That's another version of it. It's odd because Aristeus uh, was a, um, a a god, really, and a god of agriculture and beekeeping. And he was a very positive god. And he he really, his name meant the most excellent. And yet, in this story, he becomes the villain. He becomes enamored of Eurydice on her wedding day, and he chases her in order to force his way on her. And she flees, and she falls into a pit of vipers, and they bite her, and, and she dies. So Orpheus is utterly heartbroken by this, of course, and he sings laments that are so beautiful and so heartbreaking about loss that everything stops. All of nature stops. Everything weeps, the sky weeps, the, the trees are weeping, and the gods are weeping with him as well. And the gods realize we can't let this keep going. I mean, everything has stopped. And so they tell him, why don't you take those songs into the underworld and sing to Hades and ask him to let Eurydice come back? Because after all, Dionysus went down there and he got back his mother, Semele. So perhaps you can do that. And so he, he goes down there. We would think this was rather courageous, I think, for this musician to go down there singing a song into the, the world of ghosts and the dead and the judges of the dead, especially since Hades' wife was acquired by force in, in a very similar way to how Eurydice's, uh, Eurydice died. And so Orpheus goes into the underworld and he sings, and there are various versions of what happens. 
the most common is that Hades isn't really buying it. But Persephone, who certainly resonates with this whole scenario, convinces Hades to let Orpheus have Eurydice back. But Hades insists, you cannot look back at her until she reaches the sunlight. If you do, you lose her forever. And this, this is how you will prove that you trust me. So Orpheus leads the way and she follows and he gets out into the sunlight and he keeps walking and he's trying to be patient. He, he, he can, he can hear her footstep, he believes, and he's, he's walking and he can't stand it. He, he finally turns around just as she is about to step into the sunlight. So she disappears. He's heartbroken. And then he goes to sing to the sun at sunrise to Apollo every morning. And Apollo takes pity on him and teaches him all the mysteries. And he becomes, he was known among the Greeks as simply the theologian, the one who sort of invented all their religion. And, and so to Plato, Plato said, what a fuss. I mean, everybody dies and, you know, he loses his wife in a tragic way, granted, but a brave man wouldn't make such a fuss out of it and wouldn't try to go down there and break the laws of nature. He was obviously a coward. He was also known for uh, refusing to be in the competitions for singing holy hymns. He said that it was uh, an insult to them, but everybody else said he was afraid of competition, again, because he was a coward. So the Greeks were very split about him. And yet Plato says that Socrates, when he's contemplating uh, his potential afterlife, when he's about to drink the hemlock, he says, you know, if I'm going to have an afterlife, I'm going to get to meet all the people that I always wanted to meet and talk to and ask questions. And the first one I'm going to talk to is Orpheus. And... Orpheus and Orphic themes are all over Plato's dialogues. In the laws, when Plato finally decides who's going to decide about laws, who's going to make laws, who's going to say that a law isn't working and stop the law, and he decides it should be a group called the Night Gathering. And they will only gather in the moments when the very first blush of sunlight reaches the sky until the full disk of the sun has risen above the horizon. And he wanted them to be elder Orphic priests. And this was something that, that modern scholars, I mean, they still, modern scholars in sociology and pol political science who view the laws as a very important document have even suggested that by the time Plato wrote that, he must have been senile to put these crazy mystics in charge of this whole system of rational government that he's designing. So there's a weird split in Plato where, and in Greek culture, between absolutely admiring Orpheus as the height of religion and of poetry and music, and then, but also not liking him because he's a vegetarian and he's effeminate. And there was even a story that uh, another famous myth about him was that he was on the Argo with uh, Jason and the Argonauts searching for the Golden Fleece. And he's best known there for doing things like uh, when the sirens begin to tempt them, he sings a song. And when he sings, even the sirens are overwhelmed and are silenced. Um, it's like when he went into uh, Hades, even Sisyphus rolling the stone 
forever was able to stop. And the vulture who was eating the liver of Prometheus for bringing fire to humans stopped. And all the millions and millions of ghosts gathered around to hear him sing. And so Orpheus uh, on the Argonaut was also an interpreter of events. So if there was an earthquake, for instance, that meant that Apollo uh, was his, those were his footsteps, and he wanted a shrine to be established on this place. And interestingly, they say that he went to all these different places, inquired about their gods, and wrote them all songs for their gods, and and so gave them religion in a sense, this this mystery religion. And this particular. A story about him was, however, uh, that he sang a song about a red-lipped boy and initiated homosexuality in Greece. So this was, you know, perhaps a slanderous or humorous story about him, but you can see that there was a lot of of doubt among these masculine Greeks who had worshipped Achilles and Odysseus about what to do with this Orpheus character. He was clearly a revolution. And and before we leave this this part of the subject, let's point out another reason he was counterculture. So prior to him, in the Greek culture, unless you were a great hero, in which case you might be lifted into the heavens to be with the gods, become stars, or you might be, as I said, at the banquet of the gods, or given a place in the Elysian fields as a great historical hero. Everybody else was out of luck. Everybody else went down to Hades and was a flitting little shadow with no memory, no, no ability to communicate. And it was a very sad thing to not have a body and be able to do things and eat and fight and do all, do all that life allows you to do. And so the heroes and people who were aspiring to be heroes could lord it over the people in a sense because they were going to be immortal and everybody else was going to be this this ghost down. And if you were bad, you'd go into Tartarus, which was mud and fire and uh, a terrible place to be. Well, Orpheus comes along and completely upends this whole idea. And the Orphic idea is, no, actually, you are an immortal soul. You're divine. You're a little god that has completely forgotten what you are. And you are down here in this material world, torn into pieces. Your soul is torn into pieces to make up your body, to make up your organs and all your cells and everything that makes you, you. And it's so so busy in keeping all this going and, and trying to exist in this world and having reactions to this world, you don't even know what you are and you could spend eternity falling from world to world, from life to life, never knowing who you are. But if you're initiated into the Orphic Mysteries, then you will have what, what the Germans call a totem pass. You will have the password, uh, the death passport. And when you have that, you re remember and you regain your immortality and you become a star. You are at the banquet of the gods with a consciousness like that of a god and a co-creator in creation. And so for Orpheus, it was about remembering what we are. And to do that, you have to purify yourself. This is why, for example, that he didn't eat meat. Because if you ate meat, you, were, you, were, you already had one body's enough for making you lose yourself. If you throw other bodies in with that body, then there's so much density that your soul, what's in there, can't, 
can't have any consciousness of what it was. And, and so you live a certain life. You're very ethical. You live quietly. You don't kill. You don't sacrifice animals. You, you work on your intellect. You learn. You try to learn about the gods. You might do rituals in which you ask the gods, like these hymns, to help you, to save you, to, to help you to remember yourself. And then, when you pass over and you find yourself amongst all the thirsty, thirsty souls, most of whom who don't know where they are, well, they're all going to go for the very first water they see. And that is the water of forgetfulness. And once you do that, you're doomed to another life. And they say, no, 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 don't go with the crowd over there. You keep walking down that path. And then when you get to the lake of memory, there will be guardians standing there. And they will say, who are you? What do you want? And you will say, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. This you know. Now give me cool water to drink from the lake of memory. And so they show you this mercy as a divinity that is awakening to itself. You drink of the water of memory. You remember all the lives you lived. You now have the God's vision of creation and can see all and why it all happens. And you go to join the gods at their banquet. Now, if you get initiated like that, and you're, let's say you're a, uh, an intellectual, slightly effeminate male <laughs> that might be attracted to the Orphic Mysteries. And now you're walking down the street and the big strong guys who've always thought you were a joke give you the, the you know, there's that loser. You suddenly have this look in your eye because you know that they are the losers because they don't know what they are. And when they die, they will go off. They might be reborn as an animal. They might be reborn as a woman, which was a terrible thing for the Greeks. And, and so as a result, you kind of have the upper hand. And this is counterculture. This is that, that knowing countercultural glance, whether it's beatnik or a hippie or Rosicrucian in the 1600s, that says, I know something that you don't know, and that makes me cooler than you. <laughs> so that's part of the argument that Orpheus is, is, we even describe him at one point as the first rock star, because the Argo is kind of a tour bus, and he, he's, you know, torn apart by women, and, and he's, he's somebody whose songs have all the mysteries of the world, but other people laugh at him and say that he's a joke, and it's, it's a lot of the archetypes that have been projected uh, on famous musicians were first projected on Orpheus. It strikes me that uh, a couple of things, there's probably a connection there with Pythagoras, who was also a vegetarian. And what about the uh, Eleusinian mysteries, which also involve a journey into the underworld? And you referred to Persephone, who the, the goddess of the underworld, the wife of Hades, who, who had also been abducted and taken down. And uh, the, the mysteries of uh, the Eleusis are very similar. I gather, although I'm not sure how much is known, really, uh, to the mysteries of Orpheus. Yes, very much so. And this is an interesting, this will give us an insight into how scholarship evolves. And there's a, a famous uh, example, it's fairly recent, uh, about the problem with Orphic scholarship. It's compared to Penelope in, in the Odyssey, who every day she's weaving something that every night she has to unweave in order to, to uh 
wait for Odysseus to return. And this is what keeps happening in Orphic studies. We, we think we know something and then something else is found and then that doesn't work anymore. And we have two sides. The side that says there never was an Orpheus. The Orphic mysteries were a literary creation, probably by Pythagoras and the Pythagorean school. It was all kind of this wonderful hoax and it worked beyond their wildest dreams. And the other side that believed there was an active Orphic religion for hundreds of years in the Mediterranean, and it was a rival to any other religion. And, a, and, and so was there an Orpheus? Well, probably not. There's five historical Orpheuses, but we don't know much about any of them, and none of them really match the Orpheus story. And there's a great scholar uh, who's written some wonderful books called Black Athena about the uh, influence of Egypt and Africa on the, on Greek civilization, and and he said that that it very well may be that the Egyptian word I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but it's roughly Orpheus or a pious that this is a word for a hereditary prince in ancient Egyptian. And so it's very similar to Orpheus, and that perhaps this is all Egyptian. And and incidentally, when we do look at the pyramid texts and we see uh, this idea about about immortality being gained by knowing the right things to say and by declarations of purity, and this is all in the ancient Egyptian religion. So there's a huge influence of some kind between the Orphic religion and the ancient Egyptian. And it, there are scholars today who are arguing that uh, during a period in Egyptian history when there was a, a holy war against the Assyrians and Greek mercenaries were hired, there was also a recodification of of Egyptian beliefs where the pharaoh originally had been the only one who gets to go on to the immortality. Now everybody had it, and, and they, were, they were changing it very much in a way that looks similar to what was being taught by Orpheus later, or by Pythagoras through the mask of Orpheus. Now, we even have, for example, one writer uh, was known as Orpheus of Croton. And of course, Pythagoras was, was from Croton. So there have been suggestions that that was a pen name for Pythagoras. And beyond that, another interesting thing, we can't, we can't even say that it's Egyptian because when we, we look back into Hittite ideas, there's a lot of similarities. They also have the forgetting and the, the pool of water that's memory and the code words to be said. And there's another thing about Pythagoras, which is why did he wear pants? Because the Greeks didn't wear pants. The Persians wore pants. And the reason he wore pants was because he grew up in a city that was closely uh, involved with Persia, had been trading with Persia and sharing knowledge and wisdom with Persia for generations. And that gave him access to Babylonian astrology and astronomy and a lot of ideas that show up in Orphism where the stars are a very important element in all of this. So to, to going back now, so very likely it's Pythagoras who is behind a lot of this and the Pythagorean community. And, and very likely there was no Orpheus. However, um, for example, there's a famous, once famous uh, document called the Testament of Orpheus that came from the Jewish uh, people in Alexandria 
where they declared that not only did Orpheus exist, but Orpheus studied under Moses. So people were constantly adapting this myth to fit into uh, their needs spiritually. And that continues, as our book shows, as Orpheus is reinvented over and over again. In particular, during the Renaissance, there seemed to be a, a great emphasis on Orpheus due to the translations of uh, Ficino. Yes, absolutely, and and Ficino is is a is a huge figure in in the Renaissance happening. When we look at the people that were around him and who he was influencing with this inspiration, and often what he did was he had a a, a lyre or lute that was uh, had a Orpheus painted on it. And so the famous story about Ficino and the hymns is that at the age of 29 in 16 I'm sorry in 1462 he wanted to devote the rest of his life to translating Plato, Aristotle and and apparently the hymns these were these were now rediscovered by Europe they had been preserved by Islam but had been lost in Europe and there were traders going to Islam expressly looking for this kind of material and bringing it back having access to it Pacino was really excited and had the skills to translate it into Latin so anybody could read it but he had no money. He was a priest. He, he, he was poor. And he did the hymn to the cosmos, as he called it, asking for help from the gods to be given what he needed to be able to accomplish this task of translating the hymns. And within days, his father brought him letters from Cosimo de' Medici. And one of the letters said, I have just purchased a house at, at Caregi and I want you to come here, and I've assigned a farm so that you will have the income that you need to live here, and here you will devote your life to translating Plato and Aristotle, and please bring your lyre and sing us these songs that teach us how to, to really live and to have happiness. So he was allowed to do this, and together Cosimo and Marsilio Ficino created the Platonic Academy of Florence, reviving uh, Plato's Platonic Academy, and and the people that were involved in this. So it's a wonderful scene. Um, they would get together at night, for example, artists, sculptors, uh, priests, future popes, and Ficino would play hymns. And he often said you could use them in the most seriously religious ways, and they were the most powerful magic, he described them as. But he also said you could just use them for fun and for your friends and to enjoy singing them even by yourself, to, to lift yourself and to tune yourself to a higher tuning. And so he would gather up, the friends would all get together, and Ficino would sing the hymns that inspire everybody. And we have a, a journal entry from an opera composer named Poliziano, who, who says, oh, I got so worked up listening to this. And I went home and I wrote music all night long. And he had this impact on so many artists. Now, who did the sets for uh, Poliziano's opera Orfe? Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Botticelli was involved here. Uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent would, would later take his father's place as the patron uh, supporting and, and listening lovingly to Ficino. 
And so, and Pico della Mirandola, who wrote the, uh, the, the Dignity of Man, uh, they, they were all part of this circle and many, many more that created the Renaissance. Well, let's talk about the hymns themselves. I know you and, and your wife, Tamara, have created new translations. We're blasphemers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we um well there was you know there was a missing hymn we added one like for that missing hymn the hymn to number and such we we really approached this not as uh an exact scholarly translation which exists a wonderful translation by Athanasicus uh, who was very kind to us and and helped us with information when we were in this process we wanted to approach it like artists you know a little bit of the Cocteau uh, the Orpheus trilogy kind of idea, maybe not as crazy and surreal, but um, wonderfully so. But we wanted to to bring a, an artistic uh, a license to it, and and part of our motivation for that was the original hymns are a little dull. Um, they're very repetitive and formulaic. The priests knew what was being talked about. They didn't need reminders of what the gods were associated with, what their correspondences were. But we don't know them. So Tamara had deeply researched all these gods in terms of ritual and correspondences. And so we wanted to add touches of that so that as you were reading them, you would get a flavor for what the god was associated with or what the god was said to, to like. And, and also you were supposed to say what the, you know, if you were supposed to condemn what the god didn't like. And so there's a little bit of that in there too. And, and we wanted it to be, to be beautiful, to read, to, to be something that would lend itself easily to singing um, and, and to have a very poetic kind of setting. And Tamara, being a very experienced lyricist with our band and, and a very respected lyricist, um, really brought this tremendous ability to, to say a lot in very few words to these hymns. And, and so we did take liberties and, and we talk about in the book, uh, Onomakritos, who was during the era of the Athenian tyrants, he is said to have gathered up the books of Homer and, and really made the Iliad and the Odyssey that we know today. And he's also rumored to have put together the hymns of Orpheus, to gather them. And he was actually uh, accused in court in Athens of changing them, of, of adding little things and taking things out. And he was accused of being a blasphemer. So that's why we describe ourselves as blasphemers in, in his tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you describe the hymns as being magical and you worked with them yourself. So let, let's talk about, first of all, what you mean by magical in this context. Sure. Well, let me give you an exa a personal example. So when we first did them, now we had talked earlier about, about my uh, friendship with Manley Hall and Tamara's friendship with him that she wrote about. And so when we were leaving, when he finally got us out of there, it, we were so bereft. I mean, we, we know all our friends had been there. This was our whole life. And now we were supposed to go into the world of music. I mean, that's a rude awakening to go from PRS into the world of music uh, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s. And so we decided since the last project that I worked with him on was the hymns of Orpheus that he was doing a reprint of the Thomas Taylor translation. We decided to do them. And so we were going to combine my brief, but, but potent study of ancient Greek in college 
which allowed me to know my way around uh, the Little Scott Dictionary and the other things I needed. And her research into ritual to to do these things together. And and the first versions were different. They were much more uh, simple than these, and I think more reliant on Taylor. I would describe them as. And but we we were living in a third story apartment with one window out on on like other apartment buildings in the middle of Hollywood. And we would go in there and we, we adopted some of the orific habits, like no beans, no meat, uh, no alcohol, no, no kinds of intoxicants to be pure. And it was still an artistic thing. I mean, we were sincere, but we really weren't like, okay, we're talking to the gods here. This was just us sort of mutely in a weird way, even though we were saying things, to, you know, facing the cosmos and saying, help <laughs> and thank you for everything. And, and so weird things happen. We would softly sing them, uh, sitting really, or kneeling by, by this window, open window. And to give you examples, perhaps the most dramatic was when we did the hymn to Athena, a great horned owl in broad daylight. I mean, owls have never been a common sight in Hollywood. And a great horned owl is never a common sight in, in daylight. And during this this hymn, a great horned owl flew up and landed on the nearest telephone pole, sat there during the entire hymn, and then when the hymn was done, jumped down and swooped directly at us in the window and then up and over the building. We were pretty stunned. It, it, that was a weird one. And, but we weren't, we didn't draw and conclude, we weren't saying, oh my God, Athena manifested or anything like that. We were very kind of agnostic about it all. We, we, were, we were sort of, okay, we're not sure what's happening here, but something definitely happened. So as we continued, there were more of those kinds of experiences. Some of them were very innocent and slight, and you might say, oh, well, that's stretching it. But for example, when we were doing one of the hymns to Hermes, um, there was, uh, a wind just whipped up out of nowhere and rattled all the blinds, and it really sounded like laughter. And we just thought, that is so Hermes. And then when we did the hymn to Aphrodite, on the other hand, it was very obvious, because as we're doing the hymn to Aphrodite, a couple holding hands comes walking on the sidewalk underneath us and stops right under us where we're softly doing this hymn three stories up. There's no way they could hear it with the traffic sounds and everything. And they kissed. So we actually had these two strangers kissing underneath us when we did the hymn to Aphrodite. So there were there were examples like that. And so we were we were impressed, needless to say. And later as we did more research, we discovered that as I mentioned, Ficino said that the hymns of Orpheus were the most important magic, the most powerful magic. And what does he mean by that? And this takes us to what, what do we mean by magic? Because are we talking about magic in the sense of manifestation, right? Like, like Ficino wanted to manifest a way to, to be able to do these translations. So he did the hymns and he got what he wanted. And certainly there are people, I believe, that use these hymns in that way to try to manifest. My feeling is that they, this is not what the intent of these hymns were. And, and part of the hint in all this is what, uh, Ficino says, because he says, I learned from Orpheus that love existed and that it held the keys to the whole world. The whole power of magic consists in love. Okay, so what does he mean by that? Well, first, 
I would argue that within the hymns, we see the hymns are almost like a book of hours or, or a, a calendar. They, they cover 360 degrees of human life and the deities that are associated with them. And, and they try to show you the wisdom, the necessity in each of these aspects of, of life. So even in a very solemn and frightening hymn, like the hymn to death that closes the whole cycle, there's no asking for mercy. There's no, under, you know, no feeling that, well, if I do this hymn to death, I'll live longer. No, it's even said in there, you do what fate says, and there's, there's no changing that. But then death is thanked for uh, helping us to love life more for teaching us that, that, that life is to be cherished. And death is also praised for giving us the opportunity to be liberated from the weary wheel of suffering, which is the cycle of necessity, the reincarnation, and the, the cycles that always happen in this world where the most beautiful uh, thing that, you know, it could be a plant, it could be a, a cat, it could be a human being. They're filled with vitality and beauty and, and, and energy. And, and then time takes its toll. And everyone feels that loss within themselves and the fear of that, which is a strange thing. And, and to me speaks to the immortality of the soul, because as bodies, we, we should be used to that by now. But there's something in us that just doesn't get it, that, that, that wants to be eternally that, that youthful paragon of, of everything good and, and dynamic. And so I would say that these hymns are about uh, asking to be saved by, by being raised to a higher vision of how this world is filled with, with mercy for us and help and wisdom if we will open ourselves to the wisdom of the gods. And later the Neoplatonists would, would kind of debate uh, how that happens. So is it by us doing ritual? And so we are sort of telling the gods to help us, which some people have argued that's what the hymns were trying to do. I know all about you. I know your secret names. And we can see how the hymns, and, and you mentioned the Eleusinian mysteries, and I should say that, that there were scholars who said that the hymns of Orpheus were used in the Eleusinian mysteries, such as Thomas Taylor. That's not really considered these days to be probable, but who knows? And certainly there were great similarities there. Now, as, as the Orphic mysteries depict it, um, we, I should tell this story. I should have already told it. So I'm going, I'm going to go sideways here for a moment to set up some context. Um, the origin of humanity and why this, this totem pass of I am a child of earth and of starry heaven. I think this, this is an important story for what's going on in the world right now. So there is argument, there are arguments, by the way, that this is not Orphic <laughs> in academia. But for most of the history of scholarship on this subject, this is believed to have been an Orphic story. And the story is that that Zagreus, who was the baby Dionysus, was born. And Zeus fell in love on sight with Zagreus. And in fact, Zeus picked him up and put him on his throne. And that meant this is the next king of the gods. And as much better than I am than Kronos was, who was a cruel god, this god will be even better than me. Look at him. You know, it's adorable. 
And the Titans see this. Now, the Titans are the old gods. Cronus was a Titan. They don't like the gods because they were deposed by the gods. And they, they're jealous and they're full of hate and, and they, they're violent and destructive. Even when they try to do good things, they tend to be destructive. And they see this and they just can't stand it. So they wait for Zeus to become interested in something else. And they take these toys. And among them are, are balls and a mirror and a tuft of, of uh, fleece. And, and they use them to draw Zagreus, the baby Dionysus, off the throne. It's like, come with us. And they take him somewhere very remote where Zeus isn't very aware. And they slaughter him. They cut him up. And they put him in a stew to eat him. They're gonna, they want to take his power. And with that power, they can th overthrow the gods and be gods again. Well, Zeus becomes aware of what's happening, finally. And he throws lightning. And everything is reduced to ashes and smoke. And that is what human beings are born from. We are partly the Titans and partly Dionysus. They call us the tears of Dionysus. And so Apollo's job, the god Apollo, he's called the savior in the Orphic Mysteries because he is going to save all the little pieces of Dionysus. Now, by now, I hope that your, your viewers are seeing the similarities to Christianity, that it's huge influence between Orphism and Christianity. In fact, the early church fathers were very open to Orpheus and described him as being uh, one of the enlightened pagans who, who if, if he had been born after Jesus, he would certainly be up in heaven. And so that combination of Titan and... And, and divine necessitates imprisonment by the gods as they see it. And you can see by what humans do, you know, we're, we've already built world destroying weapons. And I mean, we're a threat to the gods and we love doing movies where the gods die and we retell the Greek myths, but always at the end, the God is, is out. And like Titans, we, we keep doing this kind of thing. And so the gods imprison us in bodies life after life. So we can be purged or we can integrate, perhaps, the Titan aspect. And when we do, we return to our true race as children of Dionysus. And what does it mean to be, uh, to be Dionysus, to be a piece of Dionysus? It means that we're, we're, every single human being is the child of Zeus. Because we're all Dionysus, and Dionysus was Zeus's son. So this idea that, that we're... We, we then become actual stars in the firmament that, that help create the universe. And when we say star, we're talking about, let's consider our sun, which is a star, and what that means. Because all the matter that's made, making up everything around us, our bodies, our planet, the water, the beautiful sky, the birds that are singing, all came from the sun originally. The solar system emerged from, from that. And the sun continues to sustain through its light and its warmth life. And so to be a star is to be that kind of presence in the universe, to be a creator who sustains with light and with warmth and with love.
Ronnie, before we close our interview, I hope you will grace our viewers by reading uh, some of the hymns. And I gather you've also put them to music. Well, there's a, uh, actually a friend of ours is working on, on doing that. He has a degree in uh, choral composition and, and he's, it's, I'm really excited, but it's a slow process to, to, to do all of this properly. And we hope that the further down the line, the interesting thing about these is that people are like using them and, and then they, they, some people are coming back to us and telling us they work really good. Uh, they've, they've trying them in all different ways. And we ask people if you use them and something happens, anything, maybe even if nothing happens, let us know because we're so curious after what we experienced. One last weird thing before I, I do, as you, as you requested, when we finished this final version of them that became published by the inner traditions, the last uh, edit before the book goes to the printer. Now, we had had a neighbor who was gone and who had lived up in the hills here in the canyons for her whole life. And she told us that in the 1960s, she and her friends, when there were only a few houses up here, would meet under a palm tree on a trail that led to Sunset Boulevard. And they would take that trail to go to the whiskey to see Jimi Hendrix and to see the doors. And they would meet under this palm tree and they would read poetry to each other. And they called themselves the Dionysus Society. So when we finished these hymns, this was during the lockdowns, we, everything was so quiet in the city. And we put them down, read the very last page, looked at each other, and what can only be described as Dionysian screams and laughter erupted from the spot, from that area that she pointed to and said, that's where the palm tree was. And it was that kind of screaming and laughter that causes your hair to stand up. So there's something going on here. And then we like to say, we don't know, what are we talking to? Because people will ask us, of course, if you have a Judeo-Christian background, this, this can be an anxiety-provoking subject. Are you talking to gods? Are you talking to demons? Are these demons masquerading as gods? Aren't you afraid to be dealing with entities like this? And and we take a very different approach. We we look at all the different names, all the different theories about what it could be, right? Gods, Jungian archetypes, uh, egregores, which are thought forms that are built by collectives that take on a life of their own and then manipulate people for their own uh, power. Um, could it be uh, masquerading spirits, as spiritualism has often said? Um, we try to look at it and say, all those are very nice words, and they describe interesting aspects of this, but words are, are signifiers. They're not the thing. And unfortunately, people become seduced by the word when they commit to the word, and they begin to try to enforce what they think the word means on the thing. The truth is that we and no one else, I think, knows what is happening or who's responding when this happens. It could be our own souls somehow creating these, precipitating these experiences. What we try to look at is, is you know, by their fruit, you shall judge them. 
And what is the impact historically? What's the impact in my own life? What's the impact in the lives of the people I share it with? And I've never seen such positive impact historically, uh, in personal lives, amongst friends who, who have been interested in them. In doing podcasts about this, I've discovered people who have the same experience, who found the hymns and did a hymn and it initiated a whole new life for them. And so it, it's... It seems that whatever is happening here is something healthy and wholesome and, and positive and nourishing to the soul. And we need more of that. We need less titan in the world today. When you look around the world and you see all the war and the environmental destruction and the hatred and the threats of one race against another, and that's the titans. And that is the, the titanic aspiration to overthrow the gods. And... What we need is we need a lot more Orpheus. <laughs> we need a lot more of the gods. And so with that in mind, let me see what I can find here to read to you. I should probably do it like this, right? So you can see the cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, I opened it up to love, and that's got to be as good a place as any to start. Holy and pure Eros, winged archer, you play with the passions of immortals and mortals alike. Inventive, androgynous, master of everything, of celestial light, of the creatures of the roaring waves, of all that dwell in the underworld, on the earth and in the sky, of all the creative winds that carry seeds of grass and grain for the goddess who nourishes mortals. You alone control every course. Bring us pure thoughts and banish vile urges that lead not to joy but to ruin. Ennoble the devoted with your glory. So here we see the kind of love that Ficino was describing when he said that the hymns taught him that there is such a thing. Let's see who comes up next. Well, Zeus, let's get to know Dad, shall we? <laughs> the bright one, clear blue sky, you were... You are, you will always be, supremely sacred Zeus. We dedicate this to you. Under the oak of Dodona, your prophet priests with unwashed feet crouch on the ground, listening to your voice, speaking softly in rustling leaves and cooing doves. We place before you testimony in our favor. You brought to light Divine Mother Earth. Hills swept by shrill winds, oceans, and all the stars of the sky. Strongest, 
Spirit, All Father, your scepter is a thunderbolt, beginning and end of everything. You shelter the earth. Purify us, give us increase, Father of thunder and lightning. You are also Zeus the planter, friend to farmers. You are the law of hospitality, the civility of privacy and respect for property. We honor you. The Milky Way, the ladder of lights, the path of souls, we call the road of Zeus. God of many faces, grant perfect health, blameless wealth, sacred peace, and honorable glory. You know, I mentioned the hymn to death, so I'm, I'm going to do that one. Because that is a, it's a powerful one, I think. You reward all with a somber wreath of asphodel and parsley, the flower and the herb of the cemetery. You direct the path of mortals. Your absence gives the sacred gift of time. With your perpetual sleep, you break the hold of bodies on souls. Undoing Earth's strong bonds, you take from us all that we hold most precious. Deaf to begging and pleading, you execute necessity's verdict, which no one escapes. We honor you. Lead us away from the wheel of deep grief to the meadow of truth. Liberator of the ripened soul, revealer of our secrets, inspire us to love life. That was magnificent, and I hope if our viewers notice anything unusual while listening to these hymns, they'll post comments uh, in the uh, comments section associated with the video. Well, Ronnie, once again, a brilliant discussion, and I know there's so much more we, we could have gotten into, like, who wrote these hymns? <laughs> 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 Absolutely. And also the, the tremendous influence. I think that's an exciting subject because it's, it, you get it in, in places that you would never expect. And, and the other thing that's wonderful, and maybe I'll, I'll give you just a taste of this because it's one of my favorite things in the book, is the evolution of Eurydice herself. Because in the very earliest versions, Eurydice is, has nothing. I mean, there's, there's no name, there's no face, there's no description. She never says anything. She's merely an absence. Then the Romans come along and, and Virgil starts to give her uh, a, a Roman personality. So this time when Orpheus turns back, Eurydice scolds him and says, basically, you, you idiot, you've ruined it for us now. Couldn't you wait one minute? 
is really lovely and and wonderful (laughs) picture of Roman family life. And, and then we, as we move on, eventually, uh, the opera written by, uh, Gleck, um, has this change that was revolutionary at the time and caused a huge reaction, like a riot, but a positive riot, which was that he gave his opera about Orpheus and Eurydice a happy ending. In his opera, she is saved and she comes out to the sunlight and they're reunited and they sing this beautiful song and people just thought that was the best thing ever. And for a while, operas all had happy endings after that. And, and then Orpheus, I mean, Eurydice reappears, especially starting with H.D., who is a wonderful poet and writer about metaphysics who was influenced by uh, theosophy and, and, uh, she was divorcing her husband, who she felt was very narcissistic, and she wrote a poem about Orpheus and Eurydice in which she depicted Orpheus as a narcissist who was not really in love with her. He was in love with what it made him look like to be in love with her. He was really in love with himself. And then this got picked up on, especially in the 1960s and then onward, by a whole series of wonderful female poets, mostly female, but also some male um, who completely redefined Eurydice. So we now get a Eurydice who's driving around in New York in the 1960s with the dead poet Orpheus in the car with her. And she's like, ah, don't worry, I know where we're going. And then we get another version, personally my favorite, I think her name is Carol Ann Duffy. Um, hilarious poem, highly recommended, where it's Eurydice speaking and, and she's she's saying, Oh, it's so nice to be here and and in the underworld. Like I'm myself. Like all the time in the world to do whatever I want. I don't have to be around that nut Orpheus anymore. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door to Hades. And who is it? It's the Big O himself. And as she puts it, with a poem to pitch and me for a prize. And so Orpheus comes walking in there and he shows off for everybody and he's quite pompous and he he convinces Hades to send her back. And as she's going back, she is thinking, and we hear her thinking, I can't do this. I don't want to be with him. I don't want to go back there. I, I don't want to have anything to do with the guy. I, I got to think of something to do. How am I going to get out of it? And she realizes, I know, I know what I'll do. So she says, oh, Orpheus, I think that song you sang for Hades was the best song you've ever written. And sure enough, he turns around and looks at her to say, oh, really? And she disappears with a big smile on her. <laughs> so Eurydice gets to completely take on a new personality in the modern world through these wonderful poets. And we get to see an underside of Orpheus that perhaps is what the Greeks were hinting at. And we should also add that that in Plato and in, in Greek history, we are told of priests orphic priests were basically like almost fakirs they're they're street priests and they they go around looking for news of rich people who died and then they go to their homes and say listen you know if your relative didn't get purified by the orphic mysteries they're lost and uh you know for a small fee and if you buy these books and if you really want to spend some money here's one of these little gold passwords that we can put in the grave and they'll they'll know exactly what to say so they can be immortal and plato 
was just horrified by these people and what they were teaching and said that these all these books of Orpheus were actually fake and were being written by these charlatans and Orpheus's name signed to them. And this occurred at a time when books, really scrolls, became very popular in ancient Greece for the first time. So it was like a new technology. You had you had these books that you could read, and they supported what you had to say, and they proved that you knew what you were talking about. And in the Platonic Dialogues, by the way, Socrates is made to express anxiety about that. He doesn't think books are a good idea. <laughs> it's too easy to, to delude oneself with them and not have somebody that you're, you're actually speaking to who can help you clarify. Very interesting. Ronnie, well, what a joy to be with you again. You are a fountain of knowledge. And uh, I want to continue to find new topics because I'd love to have you back over and over again. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You, after all, are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.